Thank you for downloading this podcast from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. This episode of Pardes Live and Miniseries features Rav Mike Foyer. For more information on how to download more podcasts, visit elmod.pardes.org. As always, I want to thank the Pardes Institute, that's P-A-R-D-S.org.al, for helping to make this class happen. So, so as I said, this is a new semester, and we will be building on what we did last semester, but, but um, my attempt will be to make it accessible to those of us that were not together. Um, so what we're going to do today is I will take probably the first 15, 20 minutes to try to grab the loose threads of where we were last semester and put us in place. Um, I will actually want to wrap up, conceptually I want to wrap up the 16th century, which may sound like an accomplishment, except if you were here last semester you realize it took us the entire semester basically to get through it. Um, and in, in that note, looking forward, my plan for this semester, I haven't counted up the classes, but my plan is to get through um, Shabtai Tzvi and, and Baruch Spinoza, which will basically take us to the 17th century. Ten classes. Ten classes. God willing, God willing, we should be able to do it. Was that bothering you? <laughs> Sorry, it's just a bad joke. Um, I haven't fallen yet. I haven't fallen yet. And for those of you who are wondering what happened to me, I was swimming in a lot and a shark attack. Fortunately, there was a small group of school children that I saved by jamming my knee in the shark's mouth and dragging it onto dry land. And if you believe that, I'm happy to speak to you about donations later. Um, the um, that surgery, everything's going well. So, um, okay, so, so like I said, the, the, the large-scale plan is that this semester we're going to be talking about the 17th century um, and really the evolution of out of early modernity toward modernity and sort of the, uh, to borrow Rav Salvechik's term, rupture and reconstruction of Jewish consciousness in that time. Uh, today, I want to grab the threads of the 16th century and close it out with a very important um, polemic argument between the Maharal and Azaria de Rossi, which some of you may be familiar with, but hopefully I'll be able to add some thoughts. So, you guys ready? Get started? So, so, so if we're going to close out the 16th century, we need to remember where we've come from, right? This part of the class really began in the aftermath of the expulsion from Spain, right? And we spent a significant amount of time, I'm not going to trace it all, um, trying to follow the various paths that the Jews of Spain sort of followed both physically in that dispersion, but also, I'll call it religiously and um, intellectually, of how to integrate and to cope with such a massive rupture, remembering that if the Nazis hadn't come along, taken the crown for all time, we would remember the Spanish as the greatest haters of the Jews in history, right? That the impact of the expulsion from Spain cannot be overstated. So the three paths that I wrote down in my notes that I wanted to just touch base on in remembering is, first of all, the sort of birth of Italian humanism. Italian Jewry gets short shrift, in, in my experience, in people's cultural knowledge in general. We're actually going to revisit them today in the person of Azaria de Rossi, um, remembering that Italy is neither Ashkenaz nor Sephard. It is actually a culture unto itself. Even though Ashkenaz and Sephard are hardly mon monolithic, you can't lump it into either of them, even. Right? And what we saw there was that one of the ways in which the Jews attempted to deal with the massive tragedy and also the theological and cultural dislocation of the expulsion was to what we would call up-level, say that the response to evil is to be more human. Right? The response to the, sort of the particularist attempt to create a Spanish kingdom by homogenizing the populace and spitting out the Jews and Muslims, right? the, the response to that is a universalist 
posture. And this may be familiar to many people today. Many people today feel that particularism is the source of evil in our society. Call it nationalism, call it fanaticism, call it what you will. Right? And there's a very strong universalist bent amongst Jews. But we saw that there was a tremendous problem that came hand in hand with this stance amongst the Jews. Anybody remember what it was? Oh, well, I mean, the reality of evil, right, that's for sure, number one, just because you're a happy universalist doesn't mean they'll leave you alone. That's an important point, right? Number two was that, yes, assimilation, is that, that, that breaking down the walls of the ghetto opened the doors to assimilation. And, and, and that's an important thread for us to hold on to because as we go forward into the 17th century, the walls of the ghetto within Central Europe and, and in the return back to Western Europe and Germany, Germany are actually getting higher at this point. Right? There's a retrograde motion before the 18th century, which we'll see sort of the uh, emancipant, eman emancipant, the enlightenment and the emancipation, which I like to call the emancipant, um, the, and, and the breaking down of those walls, and of course the subsequent birth of a more familiar Judaism of the reform and orthodox type, and these questions of assimilation which plague us today. Is it possible to be a Jew who is open to the world as a whole and still faithful to tradition, right? A question which has not been sufficiently resolved, in my opinion, right? Modern orthodoxy in America has its stance. The reform movement has its stance. Israel is potentially an answer to that question. None of them has quite gotten to the bottom of it, but we saw that really that question began amongst the humanist rabbis of Italy in their attempt to both be of the world and a Jew at the same time, and we will see them again, as I mentioned, in the person of Azaria de Rossi at the end of this class. So that, that's kind of one path that lays out there, and I hope you can see how it's going to follow us going down the line. Everywhere where Jews are welcomed into society, they will face a question of how to maintain their identity when the previous model of identity was us and them. When people want to be us and us, it poses not just a practical question of are my kids going to marry out, but it poses a more fundamental cultural question of what does it mean to be a Jew when you live without opposition, which I don't want to exaggerate. Obviously, there was still plenty of opposition in Italy, as we saw with the discussion of the Counter-Reformation, et cetera. I can't review the whole semester. But that's one path that we saw. Um, another path that we saw was what I characterized as the converso consciousness. Right? If you guys remember the story of Gracia Mendes, right? the merchant queen, right? or right? Uh, la, la, uh, Doña Gracia, as she was called, or various other titles, right? that we saw that, that though the Jews were expelled from Spain proper in 1492, after a hundred years of persecution, the bulk of the Jews who were expelled from Spain ended up where? Portugal. Portugal, right? And now within Portugal, it was within a space of five years where there was a mass convert, forced conversion there as well. And this is what gave birth to the converso experience. People aren't familiar with the conversos. Converso is a more um, accurate and less pejorative term for what were previously known as Moranos. Jews that were forcibly converted to Catholicism but continue to live, to some degree, their inner life as Jews, be it just as an inner identity, or be it through secret practices, which at this point may still express themselves amongst Catholics who light candles in the closet on Fridays and all such stories that I'm sure people are familiar with, quite widespread in the world today. But the purpose for our discussion, because we're not going to go back through the whole thing, the conversos, as I pointed out to you, are going to continue to play a very important role going forward. Number one, if you recall, the port Jews. The conversos, as they attempt to escape from the Iberian Peninsula, begin to spread out both in the Ottoman Empire, 
and in northern Europe and in the New World, the Atlantic seaboard, are going to both en masse represent a subversive element because they're people who are literally culturally trained in not showing you who they are, right? But they're also going to rep represent a, their, their elite, the port Jews, will represent a um, wealthy, independent, and, and therefore very much antinomian, law-breaking element within society. The wealthy converso merchant who lives in Amsterdam or uh, ultimately in New York or down in South America or wherever he is, isn't going to answer to the rabbinic authorities who want to bring him back into the fold. He's not going to answer to the Catholic authorities who he's escaped from, and he's not going to answer to the royal authorities who he can buy off. Who does he answer to? Himself. And his conscience is very confused. Because that model of us and them, which for the Italian humanists they wanted to get rid of, for him has become he can't tell whether he's us or them. But this is the nature of conversal consciousness. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a it's an inner identification with being Jewish that does not necessarily find its expression through the classic structures of rabbinic law. Something which today sounds familiar to us. Today, we live in the 21st century, we recognize the individual as the unit of measure for identity, right? I am what I am because I identify as such. I'm not going to get into arguments of philosophy and culture, etc. That's just a reality in the world today. That was not so in early modernity. It was still much more of a communal, shared identity for various reasons, both cultural and literally legal. I mean, the Jews in many places, were a, as we'll speak about today a little bit in Germany, were a, were a, um, a legally organized community. Right? And the conversos will represent this new path into modernity, which will be my Judaism is how I identify myself, which is to a certain degree unconnected to its outward manifestations to the point where you'll have conversos who are practicing Catholic monks but see themselves as part of the nacio, this uh, Portuguese Hebrew nation. And we will follow them. They're going to play a very important role, like I said, not just in the economics of the merchant, the rising first mercantile and then sort of capitalist world, but also in the story of Shabtai Tzvi and, and the spread of um, significant heresies. So we'll return to them as well. So we've got the Italian humanists. We've got the converso consciousness. The third one that I wrote down, well, before I go there, questions, comments, just, yeah. Remind me your name, I'm sorry. Mindy. Oh, I'm supposed to pass around these things to sign up people's names. Uh, I think it, that's a bit of a um, sort of a, what's the word, anachronism. They, 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 they just simply aren't going to be told what to do. I mean, their, their cultural training has been such that in order to maintain a sense of self, they're in rebellion. Right? Just, just picture the ones who grew up in the Iberian Peninsula who are being forced either overtly or covertly to attend Catholic services, but who had been trained that what you do when you take the, the communion is you actually say, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokim, Hashem Echad, or things like that. There's much evidence in a, or fragments of, of sort of like inversion prayers that when they would, when they would look at the crucifix, they would, they would say these sort of mocking poems, right? So, so as we'll speak about when we get to the stories of um, particularly Baruch Spinoza and uh, Uriel de Costa, uh, or Asta, depending on how you think his name was pronounced, um, that, that that's not going to land well when they enter into the rabbinic community, which is all about the rules, right? Meaning they get free. They think being Jewish, Jewish means being free, and being Jew means being a rebel. Suddenly they find themselves in these very conservative, small c, rabbinic world where the biggest concern is don't make waves 
with the Goyim, right? And the way you make waves is through heresy. And we'll tell that story quite extensively. Um, other questions or comments? I'm supposed to pass this around. You're not obligated to stay in the class just because you sign up. Um, but by the way, it's helpful if you put your email, if you happen to communicate that way. That way, if God forbid we have to cancel or change anything, um, we can always reach you. So we're going to pass that around. Um, okay, other questions or comments before I get to the third piece? So good. We have this humanist path, which certainly will reemerge in various places. We have the converso consciousness, which we're not going to touch on again today, but we will see it again before too long. And last but not least, we have the golden age of Tzfat, where we really ended out, even though we did make our way back to Ashkenaz, that's where we're going to pick up our flow today. Tzfat, of course, is in the northern part of the land of Israel. It was a significant city within the Ottoman Empire. We spent a lot of time speaking about the, the sort of fact that the Ottoman Empire became a major refuge for the Jews who fled Spain. And in particular, it's the first rise of major urban Jewish populations in quite some time. Cities like Salonika and um, Constantinople, or Istanbul actually, more properly speaking at the time, um, had pop Jewish populations in the tens of thousands at a certain point. Right? Unlike Germany, as we'll mention later, which were really progressively smaller and smaller communities, and even in Poland as well. Right? Um, but what was happening in Svat, what I characterized to you guys, is that in Svat we got this, first of all, this incredible upwelling of personalities. Right? The author of the Shulchan Yaruch, right? Rav Yosef Karo. You got the uh, Rav um, Yitzchak Ashkenazi Luria, the Arizal. You, you got you know, um, the Alkabets. You've got uh, you know, the Rav Beirav. You got, like, you know, the, like, it's like the all-star team. Basically, you can think of Svat as the all-star team of the 16th century Jewry. And the question of how they all ended up there is nothing we're going to go back over again today. But there was a critical insight that we got from the whole story of Tzfat, which is that there are two primary sources of authority which are going to follow us now into the rest of early modernity and into modernity, and they're still with us today. Anybody remember how we characterize them? Tradition. Tradition, meaning the source of authority is we do what we do because it's what we've always done. Right? And law is its greatest embodiment. Right? That's why the Shuchan Aruch, right, the set table, right, published by Rav Yosef Karo first in 1564, represents the epitome of tradition as the source of authority. If you want to know what to do now, you just look the way it's always been done. And even though, of course, we're Jews, so we don't agree on how it's always been done, there are, so, so we don't want to overstate the sort of unification, but we spoke about the fact that Shuchan Aruch is a major act of codification Right? And therefore, according to many opinions, many of his contemporaries even, a calcification of the living process of law. I don't know if you've ever felt stuck in the forms of Jewish law today, but um, that is a problem which really begins, I mean, arguably you could say it starts with the Mishnah, but it hits its inflection point with the Shulchan Aruch. And it's, it's not an accident that the Shulchan Aruch is one of the major products of the printing press. And granted, the printing press has been around for 100 years or more, so there are plenty of other books but it, it comes together with the rise of printing, the dissemination of knowledge. And I'll just remind those of you who were here and those who weren't, what happens to a culture that reveres the, the written word when they encounter mass-produced writing? Just picture my five-year-old when he drops cat in the hat and he picks it up and kisses it, right? That, 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 that itself embodies the challenge. Why is he kissing cat in the hat? He shouldn't be kissing it. He's been trained to revere the written word, as were the Jews of the medieval world, and therefore they were enormously vulnerable to
to a lot of nonsense that was printed simply because it was the printed word. And we're going to see that challenge again today. So one side of the equation was tradition, right? And obviously it's not going away. In fact, the, the more powerful the waves of modernity get, the more tenaciously a subset of Jews will cling to tradition as the sole source of authority, right? And we will probably speak about that next year. What was the other side of the equation? Experience. It came as a spiritual revolution, but the word that I gave you guys was experience. The other source, and this is true of all humans, either you, you, you find the source of authority in your life by what you've always done or what others have told you, or how do you do it? You go by gut. You go by what you know. Experience, and we spoke about how, and this is, I think, Chuck, why you mentioned the spiritual revolution, how the mystics of Sfat, many of whom belong to what we call the prophetic tradition of Kabbalah, hearing voices, asking angels, right? They're not just looking to the past to understand what it is they should do in the present. They're actually trying to access the divine voice in the present in order to understand what the future holds. And this sense of imminent redemption will always linger amongst the mystics, right? Because you figure if God is talking to you now, if you ask the right questions or you do the right answers, you should be able to push the process forward. Now, experience as a source of, of, uh, of authority doesn't intrinsically contradict tradition. Meaning we spoke about the fact that the author of the Shulchan Aruch, Rabbi Yosef Karo, had a magid. He had a little angel who was the embodiment of the Mishnah that spoke to him in a feminine voice and explained all kinds of stuff to him, even though he was the legal expert. And we spoke about the fact that the Arizal, Rav Yitzchak Ashkenazi Luria, even though he's the great mystic of the 16th century, nevertheless was a master of the sort of revealed traditional Torah. But push comes to shove, there's something deeply antinomian in relying on one's own experience. It's a law-breaking stance. Right? That's why the, the sages were very wary of the prophetic tradition. You know, all, I mean, one can argue, since Moshe came down from the mountain and started to write things down, every Jew has had a problem. I'll ask you guys this way. Imagine you lived in the time of the first temple. I'm, I'm granting you all that you have your teeth and you're literate. Um, and you wanted to know, as a good Israelite, what it was that God wanted of you. You've got two choices. You can look at the scrolls that you've inherited, however you conceive of what those scrolls were. Even the most biblical critical stance says that there was a written tradition within the first temple period. You can look at the scrolls that history has granted to you to try to determine what God wants of you. Or you can go down the street to the person who claims to speak in the voice of God. Which one would you do? Right? I don't think I've ever had anyone say, I'll go for the scrolls, please. Right? And so that problem doesn't go away. So long as there's a mystic tradition which claims to speak in the voice of God, if that mystic tradition reinforces the written sort of legal tradition, so fine. But as soon as they come into conflict, because the written tradition is intrinsically conservative, small c. Why? Because if the source of what we do now is what we always did, then my greatest aspiration is that my children should do exactly what I do. Right? But as I pointed out to you, the Torah wants to see the presence of God on earth. Those two are going to come into conflict at some point or another. Because if the Torah wants to see the presence of God on earth, but religion as tradition wants my children to be just like me, and I've never seen the presence of God on earth, you see, there's a conflict coming. Which is why 
this Torah of the Arizal is going to play out in very powerful ways in the spiritual revolution that we'll speak about, uh, spiritual rebellion of Shabtai Tzvi. It will play out within the very law-breaking but progressive process of the reform movement. And it will play out in the Zionists, who certainly chucked the past in favor of the future. Right? So that's the third piece, is that tension between tradition and experience becomes an axis around which a new identity can evolve. Those are the three pieces that I, want to, I wanted to touch uh, looking backward. Questions or comments before we, um, we jump over to Ashkenaz and we pick up the thread of, of history in the traditional sense. Yeah, Doug. What happened Back to the converso question, you sure? Yeah. So uh, that's, a, that's a big question that I can't answer in its entirety right now. What I would say is that, um, remember, this is forcible conversion. So, so, so the people who were going to die back in Spain died back in Spain, um, although they weren't always given the option to die, especially when it came to Portugal. It was a mass conversion and therefore pro forma, and that's why it left such a uh, sort of a weak imprint of Christianity as opposed to what happened in Spain proper. But a as we spoke about that there will be struggles of how one removes this stain from the soul. Because according to many of the leading minds of, of Judaism in the 16th century, Christianity was an idolatrous practice, at least for a Jew, if not for the Christians themselves. Um, and, and therefore, they've fallen into the greatest sin a Jew can, can fall into. And we're going to see that play itself out in the Shabtai Tzvi story. Other questions, comments? Okay. Don't, don't be afraid to stop me. We're going to now um, jump back to Ashkenaz. Ashkenaz at this point, though, of course, is not in the Rhineland any longer. We've moved to Poland. That's a story I can't really review at this point. Um, just a, like a, two personalities that will help us understand the context, and then we're actually going to encounter some, some hopefully, new, new thoughts. Um, Rav Yaakov Pollock, who was from where? Poland, hence his last name. Right? Um, the, uh, yeah, the, the, he, Jakob Pollock is an interesting personality that I'm not, we, we spoke about him, I think, maybe even last year, if not last semester. Um, but he's important for us for a very particular reason, is that he will establish one of the major, arguably the first major yeshiva in Poland proper, in Krakow. Um, and the method of learning which he introduced is going to follow us, wrapped in controversy down to this day. It's called Pilpul. Right? fail in modern Hebrew means what? To, yeah, it means, well, it means to twist and turn, and it's usually used in this context means argumentation. And it's not just to argue. It's often argument for argument's sake. Right? In its, in its sort of um, extreme form, sometimes ad absurdum, it reaches that sense of how many angels can dance on the head of a pin that caused scholasticism amongst the Catholics to become a source of mockery, more or less, at the same time. Right? So this pilpul is not new in Ashkenazi culture. Those of us who got to learn about the Tosfists together will recall that the Tosfists really, in fact, you go back to the, the rabbis and you'll notice a striking tendency to argue about almost everything. Right? It's a process called dialectic. That the assumption that the source of knowledge is not a linear process of uncovering a truth which simply needs to be clarified. That's a Greek attitude. 
right? But rather, truth is discovered through the, the challenging of questions and opinions, which by posing them against one another, cause new insights to emerge. Right? You see it in the Gemara all the time. It was the Tosfists back in the 12th and 13th century who really reintroduced this method into the learning in Ashkenazi culture and basically, basically turned the Gemara into an infinite document, as opposed to, if you recall, in the Sephardic tradition, the philosophers, Rambam chief amongst them, were ready to put the halachic process basically to rest. That's why the Rambam says in the introduction to his great halachic work, the Mishnah Torah, all you need to live as a Jew is my book and the Bible. Because, oh yeah, he was a modest man. Um, because, because the Rambam believed that knowledge could achieve certainty. And that, and that he had indeed finished the halachic process. The Tosafists, who were his later contemporaries, believed that it was not possible. That, that, that the Gemara represents an, a, a portal, so to speak, or a, in our language, a network of infinite knowledge. And therefore, each piece, standalone, deserves a question and answer process. Well, that was a productive result. We spoke about it last year. Um, it has a strong rebirth at the beginning of the 16th century in Poland. Now, for our purposes, what's interesting about Pilpul, aside from the fact that it just will absorb a tremendous amount of the psycho-emotional energy of Polish Jewry, and that cannot be undervalued, because Pilpul prides itself on intellectual agility. If anybody has ever sat in a, in a Gemara shir, which focuses on the Achronim, who we'll speak about at another time, like the, the later authorities, and a certain Achronish way of thinking, which is, let's just say, less than straightforward. And you've sat in one of those Gemara shirs where the rabbi creates this complex construct and bringing in these sources, in, and you don't understand what's going on, and then right at the end, boom, he pulls a thread right through, and it's just like, oh, this shining moment. And usually when you walk out of shir, you have no idea what he said. But there was that moment, there was that moment where you felt a sense of enlightenment. So that type of um, intellectual agility, right, which can reduce itself, of course, to mental acrobatics, right, takes quite a bit of training. It is attractive to a certain intellectual elite and can give oneself a secure sense of cultural superiority, which has nothing to do with outward manifestations and has everything to do with one's inward posture. And that's why I like to call the Jews of Poland the original ghetto superstars. They were the ones walking through the streets of Poland, disparaged progressively, although in the beginning they were much better off than they were in Germany, but progressively, progressively disparaged to get to the point of the pale of settlement in the later, the 19th century, etc., on the outside. But on the inside, they're looking at all these Poles and etc. who disparage them and say, listen, I can take the Gemara, I can flip it upside down, I can turn it inside out, I can tie it in knots, and what can you do, you guy? Right? There's, there's a way of holding a sense of inner wholeness and even superiority, which is a challenge to this very day, that identity that's bound up with a sense of superiority. Just warning, warning people that when you combine that with a, a people free in its land, it's got potentially explosive consequences, something that perhaps we'll speak about in a year or two if we ever get to the, the present day. Um, the, but it's... So that's one piece that I want you to take away from this, is that Polish Jewry is, Jewry is on the track to becoming the intellectual elite of Am Yisrael. They're going to replace whom? Spain. They're going to replace Spain, right? And, and as we spoke about, like, there's a rabbinic tradition that God always brings the trufa lifnea maka, right? He always brings the, 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 uh, the um, medicine before the wound, so to speak, right? And that Polish Jewry was already beginning to coalesce 
before Spain was even destroyed. And lo and behold, Spain's destroyed, and you already have a thriving community, which indeed will both numerically and intellectually become the center of world Jewry until its destruction at the hands of the Nazis. Um, so that's one piece to, to hold on to here. The other important piece about Pilpul is it's representative of a process which remains a challenge to today, which is the, the progressive disassociation of the Gemara and Halakha. Now, why does that matter? The, the Gemara, the, press, the progressive disassociation between the Gemara and Halakha, between the, the, the documents, which is the Talmud, and the legal process of its application, which we call Halakha, Jewish law. What do I mean? So, originally, the Gemara is a mix of law, narrative, home remedies. Anybody join the, the Daf Yomi cycle this time? You've been enjoying the stories about how to get rid of demons? Um, meaning, the Gemara's got everything in it. And I like to call the Gemara a cultural matrix. You take the Gemara, you plant it somewhere, you just add water, poof, you've got the Jews. <laughs> That's what happens. Go to Brooklyn. No, really. It's a, it's a fantastic thing. People were saying that orthodoxy was dead in the 50s. Who oh, last last, last best, right? Um, the, 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 the power of the Gemara as a cultural matrix, as something which can actually constitute itself, is a fascinating story that we spoke about last year. I mean, because the, the rabbis are the, the speakers of the Gemara. They have a conversation. But they create a document which allows you to become a product of the conversation and then a participant. It creates the participants in the conversation who carry it forward through time, just as the Torah does, by the way. Right? So within that is a whole worldview. There's the legal aspects, what you do, and then there's the moral, ethical, metaphysical aspects of why you do it and what it means. The challenge is, is that, that as the sort of um, corpus of law advances, it becomes harder and harder to derive it straight from the Gemara. And we spoke about how the Rambam was the first one to just take that bull by the horns, and he came up with a legal code. And then we spoke about how in Spain, ultimately, Rav Yaakov ben Asher, right, the tour, created even a further legal code. And if you don't know, this is fine. You just, just, these are codes that are extracted from this sort of multifaceted and complex network of thought, which is Gemara. Right? The Shulchan Aruch even further abstracts out of that. And, and now you have a definitive legal code, which even, met, even a simple-minded person could read. <laughs> well, it makes one wonder who we are, right? Um, but, but the Gemara remains a, a field of play for creative sort of mental engagement. And there, there will have deep cultural consequences, which I'm just putting out there now for that process of disassociation. Now do you understand what I'm saying? Because the Gemara is a whole package. It's just not just what you do. It's, it's why you do it, how you do it, who you are, when you do it, right? Law lends itself to technical discourse. If anybody here has ever lived within certain sections of the Orthodox world, they've encountered law as technical discourse. It's a list of things to do today. Now on one hand, there's power in that, and it's because it, it can be liberating. It means we'll let you have a much more diverse posture on who you are and how you are in the world as long as you, it's called orthopraxis, right? right? As long as you keep your kitchen kosher, I don't really care who you sleep with or what school you go to. 
You know, and there's power for that in, in holding the community together. At the same time, it lacks coherence in identity. And we're seeing those battles today. Yeah, Mindy, a question. So, so the law becomes a discussion unto itself. We're going to see within Poland the rise. If anybody here has ever studied the Shulchan Aruch, they may have noticed that the, the majority of the primary commentators are products of 17th and early 18th century Polish culture. It, it's just the reality, right? And, and anybody who wants to say that I'm being Ashkenormative can speak to me later, but, um, but, but, but it, it, it's just the reality. Already in the 18th century and the 19th century, you're going to start to get the Kavachayim and the Zet, but, but, but really the heart and soul commentators of law will be products of this Polish culture. And it's not that they didn't learn Gemara. It's just that that, that that focus on law became independent in learning to the point where today, unless you are in a very serious program, if you're going to learn, say, the laws of Shabbat, most people do not start with the Gemara. Yes, but as I've warned you before, if you separate law and narrative, you are heading down a uh, a path which has a very deep trap at its end. There is no such thing as law without narrative. Law is insufficient without narrative, just as narrative is insufficient without law. Look at Western world today. The Western world has deliberately or unconsciously killed all the narratives which guided it. And, and it is now struggling to decide, well, what's, how can we actually enforce law? In some ways, that's meant freedom, marriage for everyone. In other ways, well, tell me again why I shouldn't be able to marry my own child. Tell me why. Because it makes you uncomfortable? You understand? I mean, it's an extreme example, but, but the, the, the only answer really is because the Bible says we don't do that. Okay, well, but we're not letting the Bible guide our law elsewhere. Okay, let's do that then. Um, okay. Do you guys understand? So that this disassociation between the Gemara and law at first will simply be functional. There's a lot of work to do. Not everybody takes to law. Not everybody takes to Gemara. And if you've ever learned in a traditional yeshiva setting, often they're separate sadarim. Like, you know, you learn Gemara in the morning, halak in the afternoon, and it can be very happy that way, right? But culturally speaking, it's, it's, it's setting us up for modernity with at first attempts to live the law and substitute a separate Western enlightened narrative, then ultimately what will happen is that Western enlightened narrative will take over and the law simply becomes a barrier. And that's where a lot of Am Yisrael resides today. The flip side is, is, that, is that if you just try to live the Jewish narrative, well, what happens to that Polish guy who was spitting at the Goyim when he tries to live the Jewish narrative without law? You know what often he becomes? A racist. Because what does he have for his identity other than the fact that he's better than everyone else? But if you ask him why, he can't answer you. Why? Because he doesn't actually live according to any identifiably Jewish set of practices and beliefs. So he has a story about being chosen, but he doesn't have a lifestyle which demands that he put it into action. You understand the challenge? So, so that, that um, disassociation really begins in a subtle and unnoticed way um, in Poland. So, so one of the chief students of the students 
of Rav Yaakov uh, Polak is Rav Moshe Isserlis, the Ramah. Right, the Ramah is, is a better-known personality in Jewish history. We spoke about the Ramah at the end of uh, last class, and this picks us back up really in a remarkably efficient fashion to, uh, to what we want to speak about today. We get it at 1245, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, the, so the, I'm not going to recount the history of the Ramah, uh, which is because either we did it or it's actually the details that are not critical. But what you do need to know about the Ramah is the Ramah is the contemporary of the Shulchan Aruch. So from a legal standpoint, the Ramah is also an adherent of the notion that tradition is the source of authority. He's one of the great codifiers. Ashkenaz has had its own periods of rupture and reconstruction, not comparable in scale to what happened to Sephardic culture with the expulsion from Spain. But theirs, as we spoke about last year, was a couple of centuries of progressive, progressive destruction and reconstruction, moving from the sort of German-French boundary land of the actual Rhineland, traditional Ashkenaz, into Poland. And this, therefore, in Ashkenaz, there is a tremendous emphasis not just on law, but on tradition, right? And, and, and you know, I'll take a minute to just speak about the power of tradition. Don't worry, I'm not going to start to sing to you. Um, the, the, but there's a reason that the, that's like the thing that everybody remembers in The Fiddle on the Roof. Because there's nothing unique about the Ramah's position on law in Ashkenaz. Okay, beside it, he doesn't always agree with the, with the Shulchan Aruch because he gives different weight to different prior authorities. Fine, anybody who's learned law, be it Jewish law or secular law, knows that precedent is always broad and you have to wind your own way according to your understandings to understand what the law actually says about the question today. However, Ashkenaz is particularly marked by an adherence to minhag, to tradition, right? In the, the sense that, that what culture is, is a continuity with my ancestors. And as we've spoken about here many times, how many people here identify themselves as Ashkenazi Jews? How many of you were born in Germany? <laughs> oh, you were. Uh, that, you, you don't often get that answer, right? I mean, you know, but you can get my point. That, that it's, uh, but I'm not German. But you're not German. Army baby? No, my mother was born in Germany. Were you born in DP camp? Right, exactly. And not so many of the actual Yekim left. Um, so, thank you. The, uh, but my point was is that nevertheless, that doesn't mean you're not Ashkenazi. Even though, though you look into the classic sources from the Mishnah onward, and Minhag is a geographic designation. Right? The, you have the Minhag of the town you are from. People like to do that today. We're in retro, like figure out where my ancestors were. My children are begging me to figure out whether we're Dutch or not. Right? Why? <laughs> So, it's like I'm telling you, they're hocking me every single day. In fact, they, they deeply resent the fact that being an American, I still keep six hours because I didn't grow up in a, uh, in a traditional home. So they're, they're, they hate me for that one. But sorry, it's low on the list, actually. Um, the, um, but this idea of a geographic designation for, for um, one's minhag, one's custom, is breaking down well before our time period. But one of the hallmarks, if you recall, at the beginning of class, we spoke about the five, the five basic characteristics of early modernity, and one of them was communication and transportation. There's just a faster world out there, even in the 16th century, right? And, and therefore, there is a new model of identity which is coalescing within the law books. And that's what's unique about this time. So the Ramah isn't just codifying law. He's codifying Ashkenazi tradition as law. 
Now, that is all well and good, but I'll just point out to you one of the problematics for it, and then this is a side point. We'll go on to the rest of the story. Um, can women say kiddish for men? Yes. Everyone's nod, nod your head. Say yes. Yes, they absolutely. Should they? Ah, right? So it, I, I teach this here at Pardes. I, I'm, I'm very fond of empowerment where I feel that it is um, possible within the halachic system. I also feel it's not always possible, to be honest with you. But where it is, I'm very fond of it. Um, the, and Kiddush is a good one. Because like so many women have been taught, especially out there in the Hillels of the world, um, that they can't make Kiddush for men. So then you open up the Shulchan Aruch and you show them like it's actually obviously. In fact, there's a question of whether on Friday night when a man comes home from shul, and his wife is there, whether actually she shouldn't be making Kiddush, because he's already accepted Shabbat in a deraita fashion. And they have to come up with some reason why for a thousand years men have been making Kiddush. But anyway, but if you look, not the, the Ramah, later, but it still makes my point. If you look into the Mishnah Brura, if people are familiar, early 20th century, later codifier of Ashkenazi path in both law and tradition. So Mishnah Brura brings down all the arguments. He agrees, yes, a woman can absolutely make Kiddush, but he says, Ganaihi. It's a disgrace. Well, okay. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. I'm willing to bet that in Radin, at the turn of the 20th century, that if, if you were sitting in someone else's house and his wife stood up and made Kiddush, the first thing everyone would do would look at this man and say, what are you, illiterate? You're an ignoramus? Your wife's making Kiddush? Right? So in that context, it made perfect sense for the Mr. Brewer to say, Ganaihi, it's an embarrassment. Right? It's, it's a shameful thing within this house. Learn to say Kiddush, man. The question is, and he puts it down in the Mishnah Brewer, even though he agrees that the law is that a woman can do it. The question is, in 2020, or 5780, depending on when you think it is, um, when women are prime ministers, presidents, doctors, lawyers, and such, Ganaihi? Right? So that's the fight. And the machloket that Avraham mentioned is not over law, because everybody agrees within law, it's completely permissible. The question is, where's the line between law and custom? Now, if you want to chuck custom, that's fine. But you know what? Nature abhors a vacuum. All you're going to do is create new customs. And you know where custom comes from? Your cultural context. And if you want to create a cultural context which sits well with the halakha, it ought to be Jewish. And one of the major challenges the Jews will face as soon as mobility and cultural dispersion become the hallmarks of our context is that can you really separate custom from law and still maintain a Jewish fabric of home and society? This is what's going on in the world today. Because as some people may, here may actually actively advocate or may have just experienced in their own life, Western liberal values have become the custom for much of Am Yisrael, but it doesn't sit well with law. One of the, on the flip side, the Orthodox world is in a fully reactionary stance in which it refuses to make a distinction between law and custom and therefore ends up trying to recreate often medieval Poland. I mean, you can go not so far away and they're still wearing knickers and funny hats. With all due respect, I don't mean that disrespectfully, but by, just to make the point, 
meaning there, there's an attempt to actually recreate in order to maintain the social fabric which protects the law at its core. This is a complex endeavor which is just starting to ferment within Poland at the time. But Poland, in which the Ramah lives, is actually going to hold that problem off because Poland has the two absolutely necessary precursors to real thriving Torah life, which are what? There's two things. We've spoken about them before. What are the two things the Torah needs to really thrive in the world? Geographic concentration. You've got to have a lot of Jews in one place who will be keeping Shabbat. That's, a, that's an expression of it. But the other critical piece, semi-independent courts. You have a lot of Jews in one place with courts that have real power, power to judge monetary law, power to control family law, power to uh, you know, enforce Shabbat, right? Then the Torah will thrive. Yeah, I don't know your name. Correct. At this point, that's exactly what I mean. There are no Jewish secular courts. But you're raising, what's your name? Lynn. Lynn, you're raising a very important question, which is that what's happening in the state of Israel today? Because in the state of Israel today, the Beit Din has, even though some would say too much power, it has very little power relative to what it had in 16th century Poland. Right? But in the secular courts, are they, are they Jewish courts or not? Ooh, that's a messy question, right? There's a rabbi in my community who periodically ends up in heated arguments because he also happens to be a judge in a Beit Mishpat, not a Beit Din. Right? And so, but it's, it's, it's tricky because trust me, they're two different systems of law. In, in monetary law alone, he's told me that sometimes he ends up having to make his decisions based on Jewish law lest he cause someone to be a thief. Because secular law might require me to pay someone else, but religious law would say, no, I'm not required. Therefore, if he forces me to pay them, what, am I, what, is, what is he doing? He's a thief. He's removing my property unjustly and giving it to someone else. Complex. He's essentially yes, but he's adjudicating law. And of course, he's a, it's, a, it's a, a public system. Therefore, he's not just operating on his own under the radar. Um, and this is something which in the world today is called mishpat ivri. Right? How much role does Jewish law serve as a precedent for secular law within the state of Israel? It's a longer discussion, but um, yeah. So yeah, let's explain that. Geographic concentration is, should be fairly clear. As the, uh, as the modern period progresses, more and more Jews will be found between the Russian Empire and whatever form that, that Poland takes on the West. If people are familiar, Poland is the sort of like hide-and-seek state of uh, European history. Um, but the Jews, whether you, whatever you want to call it, you know, Galicia, you're going to call it Belarus, you're going to call it the Pale, whatever it is, the Jews don't move around so much. In fact, they will be... Uh, you know, before the war, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, um, close to 90% of the world's Jews um, in that region. I, I'm not mistaken, it's close to 90%. Now, we've got a lot of time ahead of us. So, but that's obvious. What do I mean by semi-autonomous courts? Yeah, remember, a court can function simply as um, a court of consent. Right? What we call today arbitration courts. We, you know, you go to the rabbi because the rabbi knows. Right? The, the place where the, I say semi-autonomous is that, is that when the state empowers those courts, then, even if you don't want to go to the rabbi, like put it this way, in today, in the state of Israel, if, if I try to bring you to Beit Din because you hit my car, you'll either come or you won't. And if you don't come, you know what happens? The community new, new, news you. Well, it depends on what you think of the new, 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 right? Um, if, you, if I take you to civil court and you don't come, what happens? 
you get fined, they might take your car, they send you cops and bring you to jail, right? Because there's a power that stands behind the authority of the court. So, so the relationship between the secular law and the religious courts within Poland is all based on the fact that the Jews were given, way back in the 13th century, a charter basically to manage their own affairs. Right? I'm not going to go all the way back to the 13th century, but that will evolve into what becomes known as the Council of the Four Lands. Yes? Isn't it also possible that that time the Nunu allowed Excellent point. In, in the 16th century, a Nunu was excommunication. And it was a very powerful tool. Very powerful tool, either socially, there's a stage of excommunication where you're not kicked out of the community. You're placed in what's, what's called like nidui, where people won't come within for, uh, for our Ba'amot of you, and they won't do business with you, and they won't give you um, honors in shul, which is a very serious social exclusion. But it can come all the way to your expulsion from the community, which remember, at this point, there is no secular world. That's a product of the 17th century, late 17th century. You're kicked out, you're either going to starve alone or you're going to become a Christian. So yes, absolutely. But what we'll see is that that's a tool which is best left unused. Because as we know today, the more expulsion and excommunication happens, the more you have people standing on the outside of the community saying, well, we'll just go do our own thing. And furthermore, the more mobile the world is, I'll just pick up and go somewhere else. And they'll never, it's not like there's the internet, they're going to track me, right? Am I a Sabbath, a known Sabbath breaker, right? Um, the, like, no, I'll just go somewhere else and live. And so, so it loses its efficacy the further into modernity we get to the point where if we ever get to it next year with Moses Mendelssohn, we'll see that actually he pleaded with the official courts of Germany to actually give up that power because he saw it as counterproductive. But your point is still well taken. Um, so what will evolve, and we'll, I'll just mention it now because its proper story belongs, we'll really encounter it in 1648. Um, it evolves as what's known as the Council of the Four Lands. Because, you know, each small community has its local court, and then each larger community will have its sort of higher court. But then what happens with their major, by the way, their major communal role is, is managing taxation. Aside from the in, internal religious questions, taxation is always the hinge of relationship between the Jewish community and the secular powers that be, right? And, the, you know, the, the watchword since the Roman Empire is that the secular powers that be don't want to tax the Jews individually. They want a Jew that they can go to and say, listen, where's the money? Right? And, and so, so therefore, there's a, a, a role that will evolve along with these courts of what's known as a shtadlan, sort of a, an unofficial ambassador between various communities to the courts of the nations within which they live. I'm just saying this aside. We'll spend more time with this when we speak about sort of the, the rise of absolutism within Europe and the structures that are more familiar. But for our purposes, the Ramah is at the foundation of the creation of what becomes this council of the four lands. Um, what are the four lands? The names of people are just curious about what the actual names are. Um, Little Poland, which is centered in Krakow. Great Poland, which is centered on Posen. Right? Uh, Red Russia, which is known as Podolia, with Galicia as the capital. And Volhynia, which is Ostrog at, at its heart. Um, those are the heart and soul of Jewish life at this time. Ultimately, they will evolve into what is a almost semi-autonomous national government for the Jews of Eastern Europe. That will take time. Right? The, it will reach its height in the 18th century. So we got time ahead of us. But I just wanted to point out that the Ramah is not just this like yeshiva rabbi who's teaching his students the technical discourse of law. He's a community builder by fighting to uphold Ashkenazi custom and to build the fabric of community 
that will allow a stable world to emerge, and he succeeds beyond his wildest dreams. But it's actually not what I want to talk about today. <laughs> what I want to talk about is epistemology. What's epistemology? Epistemology is the study of knowledge. And remember, it's not about what you know, it's how you know anything. Because the Ramah is smack dab in the middle of the 15th century. And you know, in 1543, a very important book is published, which at, truth is, at its publication, gained very little attention, right? But it shook the foundations of reality as people knew it. And it was on the revolutions of the heavenly spheres. It's Copernicus's book where he argues for heliocentrism that the sun is at the center of the universe and not me. I mean, sorry, not the earth. Um, the, you know, I, I say that, I say that um, it didn't get much attention, but, but there is a great comment here from Martin Luther, Martin Luther being, of course, the father of the Protestant Reformation. He has a tradition, which was, oddly enough, upheld by Hitler, of uh, the Tischreden. He would, uh, he would give table talks. That's what a Tisch, Tisch means table in German. Right? He would give table talks, which were at the time, of course, written, not recorded, recorded um, to, his, uh, to his followers, and he said the following. There's talk of a new astrologer, notice he calls him an astrologer, who wants to prove that the earth moves and goes around instead of the sky, the sun, and the moon, just as if somebody were moving in a carriage or ship might hold that he was sitting still and at rest while the earth and the trees walked and moved. But that's how things are nowadays. When a man wishes to be clever, he must needs invent something special, and the way he does it, it must needs be the best. The fool wants to turn the whole of astronomy upside down. However, as Holy Scripture tells us, so did Joshua bid the sun to stand still and not the earth. Now, there's a lot in this, and we're going to follow it forward for the rest of this class. Right? First of all, notice that was Martin Luther criticizing Copernicus. Now notice, he, he says that it's a matter of perspective, right? right? Meaning Copernicus wants to tell you that the sun is at the center and the earth is moving. Just like if I was sitting in the car and my kids said, Dad, you're going too fast. I said, we're not moving. All the stuff around us is going too fast. Don't worry, right? I want you to remember this power of perspective, right? Then he says, you know, everybody today wants to be smart and overturn the apple cart, right? This is the warning shot of what's known as the scientific revolution, right? We've spoken about one of the hallmarks of modernity is the uncoupling of knowledge from tradition, right? He is an adherent, as are the entire Christian world at this point, in fact, all of Europe, of what's known as Ptolemaic astronomy. Ptolemy was a product of late antiquity, who gave an understanding, which apparently the Pythagoreans didn't agree with, but whatever, um, he won, um, that the Earth is at the center of the universe and that it does not move and that everything revolves around the Earth in various celestial spheres. We don't really need to understand Ptolemaic astronomy because he was wrong. But here's the key, is that it wasn't just astronomy that was, was important. Who latched on to Ptolemaic astronomy? The Catholic Church and then even Protestant Christianity. And it became a theological truth. Notice that's the last thing he says, right? It's a story, if you're familiar with it, in the book of Joshua, when Joshua's fighting the battle of um, Emek Ayalon, of the Ayalon Valley, right, which isn't just a traffic jam waiting to happen. It was once upon a time a biblical story, right? Um, and he says, you know, Shevesh 
the Gibbon Dome. We are Emek Ayalon, right? Let the sun stand still over the Gibbon and the moon over the Ayalon Valley. And indeed, the sun stands still. Well, that's a great story, yeah? But you know what the astronomers say? That doesn't happen. First of all, notice. Luther's not bothered by whether it happened or not. We'll get to that. He's bothered by the fact that it says the sun stood still, not the earth. Right? But my point is, is that there is an imminent challenge coming between the scientific revolution, whose basic is empiricism, and traditional knowledge. Because modernity is based on uncoupling knowledge from tradition. Right? When the empirical observations that produced Copernicus's book, or as we'll meet soon enough, the Tycho Bray and, and, and Johannes Kepler, other great observational astronomers. They didn't have telescopes yet. They were just watching the skies and they had theories. But their whole point was, don't tell me what you know. Look up at the sky and tell me what you see. And then let's try to figure out what you know. That is the heart and soul of empiricism. Make observation after observation after observation. And then let's try to figure out what it is, as opposed to, well, once I already know that the Earth doesn't move, everything makes sense. Of course, not everything made sense, and that's what led Copernicus to start asking questions. But enough of it makes sense that the average person who could really care less about astronomy, let's face it, I'm not going to make you raise your hands, but how many of you lay awake at night wondering what's at the center of the universe, right? Because, um, by the way, it's not the moon or the, uh, the sun or the Earth, <laughs> for that matter. Right? Um, but the, the, the key here is, is there is a challenge to what we would today call a fundamentalist stance on religion, which seems to be posed by science. You guys with me on that? And Copernicus is the embodiment of it, and I want to follow him through the Ramah and into the, into the Maharal. Yeah. It's interesting that Luther was a revolutionary. Yeah, ironic, isn't it? Yeah. Well, you know, every, every revolutionary thinks that they've gone as far as things need to go. Right? That, by the way, that's why revolutionaries become conservatives overnight. Don't, don't ever miss that. Every revolutionary is a revolutionary until they're in charge, and then they're a politician. Right? Well, that's why Che Guevara chose to die in the, in, in the swamps, and, and Fidel became a fascist. Well, we can talk about that some other time. Anyway, um, the, uh, anyway so, so the Ramah actually had his own opinions on astronomy. The Ramah, in addition to publishing the Mapa, his great halachic work, published a lesser-known work called Torah to Ola. And Torah to Ola is about astronomy because the Ramah believed very deeply that it was important that his students learn science, which is fascinating. It's a, it's a shift, and not one that people often associate with the more traditional Ashkenazi world. If anything, it's usually associated with the Sephardic world, who had a much deeper tradition of philosophy and science. But the Ramah, in fact, writes, if I can find the quotation, because I'm flipping pages around here. Um, here it is. He says, when he's, he gets flack, for writing Torah Ola from his uncle Maharshal. He gets flack from all over, but he says the following. He says that our sages only feared the study of the cursed Greeks, like the books of physics together with the metaphysics. Right? They only feared the study of physics together with metaphysics. In other words, physics is about what and how. Metaphysics is about why. See, if you can, but you, if you could uncouple them, he says, but they didn't forbid the study of the words of the scholars and their investigations into the essence of reality and its nature. Meaning the Ramah lives in a period in which knowledge is being uncoupled from tradition. You don't have to buy into the package of the Catholic Church. On the contrary, you know who's uncoupling it? The scientists, says the Ramah. 
I want to know what they say because they're describing reality. And if you're going to follow the Torah, and that was his entire goal, he wasn't interested in astronomy for astronomy's sake. Astronomy is very important in Jewish tradition. Why? For the moon, for understanding the kufot. Like it's got a lot of, we call it nafkamina, a lot of practical implications for the way in which you understand the world. Aside from the fact that it's also Masa Breshit, it's just the creation of God and therefore worth, worth learning about in and of itself. Okay? But the thing is that the sages had their own sense of astronomy. And it doesn't really map well onto modern science. But don't worry, because the Ramah had the Rambam to rely on. He says that, the, not the, he being the Rambam, the Rambam, when he's speaking about um, the progress specifically for astronomical thought, which the Rambam was very, very engaged with. But remember, the Rambam is in the 12th century, 12th and early 13th. The Rambam says the following. He says, you must not expect that everything our sages say respecting astronomical matters should agree with observation Mathematics were not fully developed in those days, and their statements were not based on the authority of the prophets, but on the knowledge that they themselves had derived from contemporary men of science. And he says, but I will not on that account denounce what they say, whether it's true or not true. On the contrary, whenever the person, they can be interpreted as, as correct, we will do so. I was paraphrasing the end there, because why read you the whole thing? What's the, what's the Rambam telling you? Who is the arbiter of whether the sages were correct or not? The scientists. Now, on one hand, duh, says the Ramah, because he trusts this empirical method, the new scientific method getting on. And he says, we've, we're part of this process of uncoupling knowledge from tradition. I'm not accepting their metaphysics. I'm just interested in their physics. And it's better. It's a better fit to what the world actually is. However, there's two problems. And they're going to chase us down to this very day. One is the simple one, which the Rambam really lays the uh, time bomb, is that, did the Rambam just tell me I could check the opinions of the sages according to modern science? Yes, yes he did. So when it came to astronomy, that wasn't such a big deal. How about biology? How about human sexuality? How about sociology, anthropology? Those are sciences. Sort of. Okay, fine. I knew I was going to get from you. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. I saw it coming. But, um, but you get my point. Meaning, this is a chink in the armor of what's known as emunat chachamim, a faith in our sages. That I told you, the Gemara is a cultural matrix. And if you want to be able to put it somewhere and have the Jews spring up, it's a whole package. Now, the Rambam says, fine, but are you really going to grind up a sheep's stomach and put it on your eyes in order to see the demons that are around your bed? Probably not. Okay. What about the astronomy? No. What about all those other issues I mentioned? Yeah, Alan? So the Rambam's particularly interested in the sages, but the question you're raising is, is applicable either way. And in this case, I want to explain what traditional epistemology was and what happened to it at this time period. Right? Yeah. The Rambam was a man of science of his day and simply was not going to deny the evidence of his senses. This is what I'm saying. So at the same time, in the 16th century, the, the Ramah started to encounter Copernicus and, and Kepler and, you know, and um, Tycho Bray, and he said, listen, they're right. How does he know they're right? Because empirically, I can see that's how it works. So here's the thing. Classic epistemology came to the Jews 
from Rav Sadja Gaon. Remember, epistemology is not about what you know, it's about how you know anything. And Rav Sadja said there are four elements that make up epistemology. One is the evidence of your senses. Right? Sounds good. Until one experiments with psychedelics and realizes that perhaps it's not as all reliable as you might think. But it sounds good. The evidence of your senses. Number two, acquired knowledge. Books, you know, learning, etc. Number three, logical deduction. Right? Things which where there's smoke, there's fire. I mean, there are he the internal processes of the human mind, which he believes to be universal. Now, you don't have to learn. If I tell you that all men are mortal and that Socrates is a man, you're going to be able to derive for yourself that Socrates is mortal. You don't need to be taught that. Something which, by the way, is under attack within the academic world today and the postmodern notion that philosophy and science are a product of white culture. It's just, no, yeah, it's what's, uh, it's what's happening today. And there's a lot to be said for it in all honesty. That doesn't necessarily mean that it shouldn't be learned, but just be wary of absolutisms. But there's three, that's three. Senses, acquired knowledge, and logical deduction. The fourth is authentic tradition. Because of course, Rabsadja was a rabbi. And what's the source of authentic tradition to him? What? Well, Torah in the broadest sense, Revelation and the sages, yeah. And Rabsadja was in the 10th century, if people are unfamiliar. Uh, he became the Goan in, in, uh, in the Surah in 929, if I'm not mistaken, thereabouts. Right? Um, authentic tradition, of course, the Jews aren't unique in that respect. The Christians have their authentic tradition. The Muslims have their authentic tradition. Rav Sajjah was very involved in what today we would call interfaith dialogue. Right? Um, but the key is this, is that he points out in the introduction to Munat Badeot, his philosophical work, really the first work of Jewish theology, he points out you can't know anything with authentic tradition. He says, how do you know that your mother is your mother? He says, because it's a general accepted human custom that the person who raised you is the person who bore you. Right? How do you know that the sun will rise tomorrow? Because all of human experience sort of indicates that it will indeed happen. That everybody operates on a frame of received knowledge. And therefore, the obligation of a human being is to use the first three capacities, which are universal. Remember, your senses, acquired, acquired knowledge, and logical deduction to clarify the fourth is your, your, your uh, inheritance actually authentic. Right? And he says that is the obligation. He actually quotes a biblical verse from Isaiah. There's an obligation of a Jew. Well, this is great. The problem is... What happens when you uncouple knowledge from tradition? That fourth element, at first it's liberating, right? Because Copernicus and everybody in his footsteps feel that they've achieved freedom, right? The church can no longer oppress us. This is their laying the foundation for secular society. But what happens is that you must sub substitute some frame of reference for the, for the information of your senses, knowledge, and logical deduction. Otherwise, it can't be made sense of. There will always be some narrative into which knowledge is fit in order to make sense of the world. And so the Ramah, as he says in Tortola, he says, well, you know, if you're going to tell me that the, the opinions of our sages are based on tradition, I don't see that as a reason to refute them. We hold fast to tradition, 
even if that tradition seems to be at variance with reason. And then he quotes the Rambam, saying that if you can find a compromise, work it out. Notice, push comes to shove. The Ramah says what? Tradition. Listen, it's very important, says the Ramah, to use your the senses, and especially when it comes to science. But push comes to shove, we're Jews and not scientists. So this is a way of trying to dance at two weddings, of avoiding a problem which, as I'm sure you're familiar with, is going to follow, particularly the Jews of Europe, right down through modernity. Questions or comments on this idea before we go a little bit further with it? Yes, sir. What do you mean? Tradition related to behavior as both tradition related to knowledge? Someone wants to open the door or something. It's quite warm in here. Okay, so it's true. Not all knowledge is the same, right? And, 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 and you are correct. There will be realms, as the Ramah said. So like when it comes to astronomy, so we believe the astronomers. But when it comes to perhaps halachic questions, whether it's law, he says, we believe tradition. And that will be one of the ways in which there are, are, are Orthodox Jewish scientists from, from the Rambam on down to today. That's yes. But, but I, I don't think it's as easily sidestepped because the philosophical questions which underlie are, are quite important because in the end of the day, there's a question of authority. And let's not lose sight of that. Right? If you begin to undermine the narrative, and we're going to come to a very particular point of it, well, um, well, you know what? Let's let's seize the bull by the horns, and uh, I'll um. Yeah. So if what we're saying is it's behavior to learn about Exactly. It begs. First of all, it begs the question. So even though Shmuel's pointing out, we might sort of make a uh, a split between behavioral and natural phenomena, or between questions of mitzvot and questions of natural phenomena. Right? It still means, can we rely upon the sages? And if we can't rely upon the sages, well, there has to be something which will substitute. Remember, knowledge abhors a vacuum just like nature. Something will have to substitute for the traditional narrative of authority if you're going to make sense out of the world. The scientists try to, to, um, to substitute what? Pure reason, ultimately. Faith in the human mind. You know where that gets us? Auschwitz and Hiroshima. It was very logical what happened in both cases. It made perfect sense. Right? So to think that those are value neutral, which indeed science fooled itself into believing it was, is, I think at this point, a mistake. Nevertheless, that doesn't mean that one becomes a fundamentalist in response because you know where that gets us? The Inquisition. Uh-oh. Okay, so we do have a solution, though, because we're Jews, because we don't have to be in one place at one time. Uh, you know, only in one place at one time. So I want to actually, because I only have about 20 or even less minutes left, I want to trace a thin line and I'll thicken it next week. The Ramah has a student who's, who's not so well known out there, but he's an interesting personality. His, his name is David Gantz. David Gantz. You guys have been nice to me and not asking me to write anything down lately, so I'll write this one down. David Gantz. Gantz means goose. Yeah, uh, German, I believe. Uh, the the um, he's actually known as David uh, Arvazi elsewhere, which is uh, it's a goose um, in Hebrew. But anyway, 
So in his early years, he, he grows, he's born in Germany, and he's representative of a shift in the base of Torah knowledge because he absorbs everything he can from the yeshivas in Bonn and Frankfurt, um, but if he wants to learn more, he's got to go to Poland, even at this point. He's born in, excuse me, in 1541. Um, he makes his way probably around age 18 to, um, crack, to the yeshiva at Krakow, where he sits at the feet of the Ramah for several years, learning not only law, but also his interest in astronomy. Because David Gantz will go on to be the author of, of several important works on astronomy. And even he will translate out of Hebrew into, ooh, probably into um, German, although I didn't actually write down what he translated. Uh, yeah, into German. Um, what are known as the Alphonsine Tables. Going way back, right? Those are the tables written at the behest of um, King Alphonse of Spain, right, that were used for navigation. Those are the tables that allowed... Columbus to sail the ocean blue. And they were originally done by Jewish astronomers of his court right, and had been maintained since the 13th century in Hebrew by the Jews. Right? And so therefore he translated them for the students of Kepler um, into Hebrew. Actually, Tycho Bray. Sorry, for the students of Tycho Bray. Um, but I am getting ahead of myself. So Gans absorbs both a love of Jewish learning and a love of astronomy from the Ramah, he leaves Krakow and he travels to Prague in 1564. Just as the city is actually re-welcoming the Jews, they've been expelled only a few days, I'm sorry, a few years before. Um, but, and he's there for a while, but in 1581, Prague is graced by the presence of Emperor Rudolf II, who moves his capital, he's the Holy Roman Emperor, he moves his capital from Vienna to Prague. This is a great um, part of European history that I can't go into. Rudolf II is a fascinating character. People are interested in like wacky royalty in like early modern European history. Look up Rudolf II. He is uh, interested in astrology, alchemy. He wanted to bring all the so-called scientists of Europe together to try to, to find the Philosopher's Stone, those of you who've read Harry Potter, right? But he's also, interestingly enough, the great patron of observational astronomy. And so Tycho Bray and Johannes Kepler were both part of his court. Now, why do we care? Gans actually records in one of his works that he spent several days doing observations in the, um, in the observatory, I guess you would call it, of, of Bray and Kepler. The result of Bray and Kepler's work are what are known as Kepler's laws, if you're familiar with them. There are three planetary laws. We're not going to go into it. Don't be nervous. The key is, he is these are the first ever asserted natural laws. Why does this matter for us? Because these are the first mathematically precise, verifiable, and therefore universal statements about physical phenomena. Read, you can't argue with this. You can't argue about the way the planets move. We have proved it beyond a shadow of the doubt. And Gantz is there in the midst of this environment. So the Gantz is, learns from the, from the Ramah. He goes here, he absorbs, he gets his own story in his own right. Maybe we'll come back to it, but I want to get to my point. Um, and Gantz then in Prague becomes the student in 1588 of Rabbi Huda Lau ben Bitzalel. Anyone know who he's better known as? The Maharal. The Maharal. The Maharal was actually, um, he comes back to, the Maharal comes back to Prague. He was uh, born actually in Poland, somewhere around somewhere between 1512 and 1526. Actually, there's a lot of yeah. debates about when he was born. Um, he became the Landesrabbiner of Moravia 
in, uh, in 1553, the Landesrabbiner is an institution we'll speak about. German Jewry at this point was organized into political units, right? Because the, the various states of Germany are still ruled by the Holy Roman Empire, and therefore, like I said, it's much easier to have the big Jew that you deal with. But uh, again, like I said, I'll, I will go back over some of this information because I want to get to the critical point about epistemology. But the, yeah, well, they were administered. There was a dozen, three dozen, eight dozen. We'll get to it when we get to 1648, but the Thirty Years' War. But for now, what's critical is that the Maral was both communal leader, potent rabbi. The Maral, of course, is best known in, in the history of Jewish thought as the person who caught what we call, we say, he, who, who, uh, who limed nista b'nashon nigle. That he taught the secret inner meanings of the Torah in an explicit language, as opposed to his later contemporary, well, actually not later contemporary, his contemporary, the Arizal, who just taught in an almost incomprehensible language, the morale attempted, even though somebody argued with me if you tried to learn the morale, to, to present in a language which was accessible to the Western philosophical mind the more inner truths of the Torah. So the morale now has a student who is also an astronomer. And he has the most fascinating answer to Martin Luther. You remember Martin Luther's argument? Martin Luther says, along comes this guy, Copernicus. First of all, everybody wants to be the new guy on the block. In order to be the new guy on the block, you've got to overturn everything. It's just a matter of he's trying to claim that we're looking at things all wrong. Now notice, what's, the, um, what's Luther's point? Only a fool would say that you're on the, on the highway and you're not moving and the cows are. Because what's he telling you? It's not a matter of perspective. Right? He's telling you there is an absolute truth to what you're after. And that, by the way, is very symptomatic of the early Protestant movement, which was still sort of riding the wave of Christian humanism that came out of the Catholic Church, that there simply must be truth. For the Protestants, they looked for it in the text, and therefore the Protestants very quickly moved toward a literalist stance on text. Right? There was a guy named Adam. He met a girl named Eve. Right? You will be interested to know that you would be hard-pressed to find an early medieval Jewish authority who reads the story that way. Oh, if you ask them, of course they'll tell you that's how it happened, but they're not interested in it. And we're going to get to this question next week, I can tell already, with the argument between the Maharal and uh, Azariah de Rossi, which is what's the relationship between a story and its meaning? But for now... The Maharal begins to encounter the, the um, astronomical thought based on Copernicus, which is asserting itself as absolute law, Kepler's law. And he's probably aware, in fact, he is aware, we can tell as I'll quote his writings later, of the Christian arguments, which simply says, no, there's only one absolute truth. It's not a matter of perspective. And, and what's my proof? Joshua made the sun stand still. So how is the Maharal going to answer this question? Now, the Ramah seemed to say what? What do we do? Science on one side, tradition on the other. Your Ramal said that? Oh, no, no, no. Tradition. Come on, Rashi, he's Ashkenazi. Maral has a much, much deeper answer, and which is why, in my opinion, the Maral, along with the Arizal, really introduced the, um, the capacity to hold dissonance, which is the hallmark of the postmodern era and not the modern era. So what does the Maral say? The Maral, if you're interested, you can look in the, um, let me find the citation so I say it correctly. Um, one second. Ah, here it is. It, 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 it's in the second introduction. 
Oh, the Gruas Hashem. Gruas Hashem is the Maral's work on uh, the Exodus from Egypt. It's also where his um, commentary on the Exodus from Egypt. Gvurot um, Hashem, right? The, the mighty acts of God. Makes sense, right? Um, it's also his commentary on the Haggadah. It, fascinating. Great books. By the way, cannot recommend enough. The Maral people, got to learn them. Foundational, as we'll speak about more next week. But there in the, the second introduction, because it went through multiple printings in his lifetime, he actually addresses the, um, the dilemma. First of all, the, he should make it clear. He says elsewhere, we should pay attention to what the scholars of the nations have to say about what, what is below the sphere of the moon, meaning the natural world, because they were scholars of the natural world. Study the sciences that focus on reality and order of the world is certainly permitted. They're like a ladder to ascend to the science of the Torah. He agrees with Thurma. A scientist can be trusted in his realm. But what happens when science contradicts the Bible? And this is what the second introduction to Gvort Hashem is dealing with. Right? Because, of course, the book's about miracles. And so this whole second introduction is, is discussing whether miracles happen. It was a big issue for the Aristotelian philosophers who wanted a, a clock-like universe. Right? That, that to Aristotle, God is the prime mover. God doesn't have a will which is asserted in a narrative. God brought existence into being, and then that's it. Everything plays itself out. So the idea that God's going to micromanage, saying, oh, you know those people who were slaves? I really actually meant them to be free. And I know there's a sea in the way, but we can deal with that. Right? that. That doesn't make sense within the Aristotelian world, and it doesn't make sense within the scientific world. And we will see this cropping up again and again and again. The notion of miracle, and not least amongst them, the notion of prophecy. Because if, if God doesn't micromanage, God certainly doesn't pass messages. Now, these notions contradict the very orderly image of natural science, which is emerging in early modernity. So, so the Maral, by the way, you've got to read the whole introduction because he just takes the whole world to tax. First of all, he, he he's like hones in on, if you're familiar with the Ralbag, Gersonides, who was like the ultimate Aristotelian within the Jewish camp. Um, he, he, he focuses in on, the, on, on him and he shreds it. He shreds it. And then he takes task the Christians because the Ralbag basically says, no, that can't really be miracles. So he shreds him because he's like, you're not a Jew. And then he takes the Christians to task. He's like, yeah, nonsense. And then he says, by the way, I just want to point out that God can do anything. So, like, why am I even having this conversation? Fine. Now I'll tell you the truth, he says. I'll tell you the truth. He says that when Kepler taught us the laws of planetary motion, he is correct. He's absolutely correct. That's what he said. He's, the, the, everything that happens underneath the sphere of the moon, meaning what's called means the natural world, the, the scientists... You can trust them. Well, then how, how could the son have stood still for Joshua? We got news for you. The son not only stood still for Joshua, it only stood still for Joshua. So it says the Maral, there are actually two planes of existence. There's the natural world and there's divine will. And he said, for Joshua and the children of Israel, who needed the sun to stand still, and for the Canaanites that they were fighting in order to defeat them, the sun stood still. For them, the sun stood still. But the rest of the world, they were with Kepler. Why? Because they weren't within what he calls the Ophek. They weren't within the horizon of need. It's a fascinating assertion. Because even though he doesn't say it explicitly, what I would point out to you is that his answer is is that what's the defining characteristic that negotiates between the natural world and divine will? Human consciousness. 
Joshua and the tribes were on a path. They were on a mission. And insofar as that they had embodied the divine will in their consciousness, says the Maral, well, then there's only divine will. Insofar as you're just going along in the world as it goes, well, the world goes. The scientists are absolutely correct, says the Maral. And someone in China or Africa or North America, when Joshua made the sun stand still, they weren't even there. They weren't there. No. It's two worlds which normally exists in parallel intersecting through the human mind. Well, that's the interesting thing, is that every classical physicist from Kepler to Oppenheimer, arguably, arguably Einstein would have said God doesn't play dice, right? Um, but from, from Kepler until, let's just say, the beginning of the 20th century, early 20th century, would have laughed at this. And then all of a sudden, you start getting people like Schrodinger saying, well, the truth is, you guys know Schrodinger's cat? Mm -hmm. Schrodinger points out that, that um, the behavior of subatomic particles cannot be determined. He didn't point it out, actually. It was uh, Heisenberg who first pointed it out. But, but it's indeterminate. And in fact, it's observation that determines it. So he sets up a thought experiment. No cats were actually hurt in this experiment. Don't be nervous. But he says that if you had a, a, a system which depended upon the random motions of subatomic particles to set off poison that would kill a cat in a room. But you can't see it. Classic physics says the cat is alive or dead. Classic physics says Kepler or Joshua. That's it. You can't have both. Says, like the Ramah, we're Jews. We'll go with Joshua. Fed a Kepler. Which is, by the way, the Jews really follow the Ramah in this. To this day, most of them. Um, the, but the... But Schrodinger actually says, well, we'll get to back tomorrow. Schrodinger actually says, no, truth is, you know what happens? That cat is neither alive or dead. It's only when you open the door and you observe it that it actually achieves a specific state. That's a physics argument. And it has been proven out at this point. I wouldn't say beyond a shadow of doubt because it's quantum physics, but well enough. So says the Maharal, you want to be able to resolve between Kepler and Joshua? I've got news for you. There's only one thing that resolves between them. The human consciousness. Within the OFEC, within the, what we would call today the horizon of event, that the divine is definitive. Outside the horizon of event, yeah. Kepler was right. That's the way the world works. Right? And the morale is going to have a profound effect going forward on this new epistemology, this new way of knowing the world, which is deeply unsettled. We haven't resolved it yet. But I think we've laid enough groundwork probably to stop so we'll pick up next week, we'll backtrack over the morale and the story, and we'll get to Azaria de Rossi. This was a production of the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. To learn more about sponsoring a podcast, please contact jamie at pardes.org.